This is all about our holy, holy, holy God. And I've entitled this the Lord of the Sacrifice because he has <laughs> declared this is what is to be done. My goal is to look at sacrifices throughout history and try to understand why sacrifices will be offered during the millennial kingdom time. Because that's the big question. Why would there be sacrifices offered then? So I would like for you to turn to the page on your handout that has the boxes on it. Not the chart, but the, th the five boxes. It's the last page, the front of the last page. And this is going to give you an overview of periods of time. There were sacrifices before the Mosaic law was given. So you see these were sacrifices that were made in the presence of God for worship and understanding the need for forgiveness of sin. Then there were sacrifices made under the Mosaic law during the Mosaic law period. Why? There was a physical manifestation of God and sacrifices were for physical ceremonial purification. So that's what this second uh, statement is about. Ceremonial sacrifices. There has been a sacrifice made that is sufficient. There is only one redemptive sacrifice that is Sufficient, And that is the sacrifice that is made by Jesus Christ. What did he do? He provided eternal salvation. Salvation being saved from the divine wrath of God, which we all deserved because of sin. This one redemptive sacrifice was for those, is for those who believe in Jesus. An internal cleansing from sin. You get a whole new creation you are a whole new creation. You get a whole new heart. You get his spirit. And then on your um, five boxes, there is the millennial kingdom time period where there will be a physical manifestation of God. The glory of the Lord returns through the eastern gate. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for spiritual cleansing. But animal sacrifices are for physical, ceremonial, outward, external purification. And then in the new heavens and the new earth, at the new Jerusalem, there's no temple. There's no sin. There are no sacrifices. And all enjoy purity in the presence of our holy God. So that's the big picture through time. And I want you to notice the statement right above those boxes on your handout. All sacrifices during all times emphasize the set apartness of the Lord. What is set apart? What's another word for set apartness? Holiness. Yes. So they show his incomprehensible holiness. All sacrifices at all times are the Lord's provision of fellowship between sinful man and sinful man's holy God. 
So now we're going to go back to the first page of your handout. I'm going to walk through very briefly sacrifices just to draw your attention to the fact that there were sacrifices made before the Mosaic law. But before I go to those, I need to um, point out Leviticus 17 and Hebrews 9:22. These are two biblical truths to keep in mind. Leviticus 17:11. The life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And we'll talk more about the word atonement as I go along. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. This is the NAS. Every other translation is a little bit clearer with that phrase, one may almost say. (laughs) According to the law, Almost all things are cleansed with blood. I'll talk more about that verse a little bit later as well. So going back before the Mosaic law was given, the first sacrifice that was made, the first death that occurred was the death of animals. And it was done by the Lord. Genesis 3.21 tells us about that. And animals Blood was shed for sin, for Adam and Eve's sin. Their skins were given to Adam and Eve as covering. So the Lord made the first sacrifice of animals. In Genesis 4, 3, we see the sacrifices offered by Cain and Abel. Abel's sacrifice was the accepted sacrifice because he gave of the best. And he gave it as a gift and there was a shedding of blood. Noah made sacrifices. According to Genesis 8.20, he built an altar after being on the ark. And he gave a whole animal. Think of what kind of sacrifice that was. There was a specific amount or number of animals on the ark. And he is offering from that the, the ones that survived the flood. He shed blood and his offering was given with worship and joy and thanks. Hallelujah. Praise God. I'm not on the water anymore. I'm on dry land. (laughs) God saved him and his family through the flood and he had built an altar. So this sacrifice by Noah was given on an altar. Abraham made many sacrifices in Genesis 12 six and seven and eight and 13. He is in different locations. And as he went from one place to another, he would build an altar. So he built an altar here and then he moved and he built an altar here and he built another altar. Abraham's sacrifices in those verses were first given in the presence of God. And he called on the Lord. He prayed and worshiped. And then in Genesis 22, two, that's in the middle of when God had commanded him to go and offer Isaac. God provided a ram so that Abraham would not kill Isaac, which he was just about to do. And this offering then with the ram was a whole burnt offering. There was shedding of blood was given in worship and thanks. Don't you know how thankful Abraham was that God provided the ram and This offering and sacrifice also showed his complete dedication to the Lord. 
in Job 1, 4 and 5, we see Job making sacrifices. He offered whole animals. There was shedding of blood. And it says that he was doing it for his family. He acted as a priest for his family in doing this. And it was for cleansing or sanctification in case his children had sinned during their festive party feasting in case they had sinned. Jacob offered sacrifices in Genesis 35. He was commanded to do it by God. He offered it with joy and thankfulness. It was an act of surrender and dedication. And in this account, he is told to tell his family, get ready, get cleaned up, put away household idols. So there is purity that was required from the participants for that offering, that sacrifice. And it was made in the presence of God. Jacob called this place or one of the places where he offered to God, Bethel, Bet-El, the house of God. So he knew that he was in the presence of El, God. In Exodus three fifteen through 18, we see that God commanded Moses to tell the Israelites and to tell Pharaoh that the Israelites are to go out into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord their God. So before they even left Egypt, the Israelites were commanded. They were told, you're going to go make sacrifices. They didn't have all of the Mosaic regulations imposed on them. They just knew they were supposed to go make sacrifices. And then still before the Mosaic laws were put into place, Moses himself built an altar in praise and worship. This came after the Israelites were able to defeat by Moses prayer. And as Aaron and her held his hands up on the mountain, um, they were able to defeat the Amalekites. So that was a sacrifice in praise and worship to the Lord. And then Jethro, who was Moses' father-in-law and the high priest of Midian, Jethro, Moses, and Aaron made a sacrifice. They offered, or it was a burnt offering of whole animals. There was a shedding of blood. It was for praise and worship. In a burnt offering, the whole animal is burned up. So um, I don't know if I said shared a meal from the sacrifice. Well, it might have been all burned up. Maybe there was another sacrifice. or Maybe they had a meal at the time that the sacrifice was made. But they did have a fellowship meal in joy and praise and worship to the Lord at that time. So that is the very brief overview of lots of sacrifices that happened before the Mosaic law. Turn to the chart. We come to the sacrifices under the Mosaic covenant and I'm going to fly through these too. <laughs> There was a burnt offering and the blood was caught in a bowl and splashed against the altar. And here's where it says all the animal was burned up on the altar. This was a voluntary sacrifice. And the burnt offering did consecrate the altar at the beginning when the tabernacle was set up. The grain offering, also called the meal or tribute offering, and a portion of that would have been burned up on the altar and another portion was then available to the priests to eat. This is voluntary, signifies thanksgiving. The fellowship offering is also called the peace offering or thank or vow or free will offering. 
This was any animal without blemish. And the blood was caught in the bowl and splashed against the altar. So I'm going to tell you something that's not splashed in a minute. This was voluntary, symbolized fellowship. There was a communal meal with this uh, fellowship offering. You can hear it in the name of it. With the sin offering, male or female animal without blemish was offered. This was mandatory to be made by someone who had sinned unintentionally or who was unclean in order to attain purification. Circle that word. There's that key word that we're trying to wrap our minds around. This sin offering is said in Leviticus 4.20 that the priest shall make atonement for them with the sin offering. So just note that word there. And here, the sin offering, rather than having the blood splashed against the altar, it was sprinkled. So it just, this is different. I don't have a lot of explanation, but I'm just pointing out. There is a different detail and instruction given for this one. The sin offering. And then the guilt offering had blood caught in a bowl and splashed on the sides of the altar. And this was mandatory to be made by a person who had either deprived another of his rights or who had desecrated something holy. My mind, I have trouble separating these two because sin makes someone guilty, but they're two different offerings. So they are, they're different. They're not the same. Now we'll go and rejoice in this sacrifice of Christ and what he accomplished for us. And we've got a background of a lot of sacrifices. So let's now look at the sacrifice of Christ. The emphasis on the blood of Christ shows the clear connection between Old Testament sacrifices and Christ's sacrifice. Blood. Leviticus 17.11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. The sprinkling of pouring out of and cleansing through the blood of the sacrificial animal was the most important element of the sacrifices. So now we're going to pay attention to the references to the blood of Christ in these verses. It's, it's in red on my handout. I don't know. I don't, I mean, of course it didn't come through as red onto yours, but it may look a little bit gray. Jesus said in Matthew twenty six twenty eight, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for forgiveness of sins. So clear. What truth. Amazing. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. 1 Peter 1.18 and 19, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So redeemed, bought, not bought with money like silver and gold, but bought with the life, the death, the blood of Christ. Revelation 5, 8, the four living creatures, 24 elders fell down before the lamb. They sang a new song saying, worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals For thou was slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood. 
men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So I will just say again, there has been one redemptive sacrifice. Jesus Christ provided eternal salvation from divine wrath. And this is a permanent internal cleansing from sin. Grudem's systematic theology says, The blood of Christ is the clear outward evidence that his lifeblood was poured out when he died a sacrificial death to pay for our redemption. Although we may think that Christ's blood would have exclusive reference to the removal of our judicial guilt before God, and this is its primary reference, New Testament authors also attribute it to other several effects. All right, stay in that paragraph for a second. What is the removal of our judicial guilt before God? Sinful man is guilty. The blood of Christ brings about justification and God declares us not guilty. So that's the removal of judicial guilt. Justification. Declaration. So be it. God says it. This is what happens. That is true. What else happened? The blood of Christ removed our guilt and our consciences are cleansed. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Sinful man is declared not guilty and internally in our thoughts, our understanding, our consciences, what would convict us, what would be bearing down on us. Like, how can I be before my holy God? He cleanses our consciences. I hope you feel that and you know it and you believe it. What else happens? We gain bold access to God in worship and prayer. Hebrews 9, uh, Hebrews 10, 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We've talked about this. We've, we think about this. We can approach the throne of grace. We know that the holy of holies is not closed off to us. We can just run right up to God, our Father, and say, I love you. I need you. Help me. Forgive me. All that. The blood of Christ also progressively cleanses us from remaining sin because we're still in these mortal bodies that have the aftershocks of our sin nature and the sin nature just kind of hanging around. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So progressive sanctification, ongoing sanctification. We were sanctified, declared not guilty. We are being sanctified right now and we will be completely sanctified when we see him face to face. These points that I've just made about the blood of Christ and what it does for us show us that we experience spiritual fellowship with the Lord because we are cleansed 
internally from sin. Only Jesus' sacrifice gives the internal cleansing from sin. Internal purification. Hebrews 9 and 10 talk about that. Now we're going to turn the page to the purification of earthly temples. Hebrews talks about what Jesus' sacrifice did and gave us the internal cleansing, but it also tells us how Christ's blood cleanses our consciences and opens the way to the heavenly holy of holies. And it tells us that the blood of animals, the blood of animal sacrifices does sanctify the flesh. There's not a typo here that may make you go, what? The blood of animal sacrifices does sanctify the flesh. This is external purification. Also, I'm referring to it as ceremonial purification. So these ceremonial sacrifices, we could call this ritual cleansing. You might call it consecration because that's what happened to the altar. I need you to think about what was going on when the book of Hebrews was written. Based on everything that we read through it, it was written before 70 AD. The temple, Herod's temple, was still standing. Sacrifices were still being made daily by the priest there. The annual festivals were still going on in Jerusalem. So Hebrews is written as animal sacrifices are being made. And Hebrews 9.13 says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. And that's the key that we're trying to see right there. The blood of goats and bulls sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. These verbs are in present tense in the Greek, signifying they are happening right then. Hebrews also tells us that those sacrifices do not make someone perfect in conscience, but only outwardly. There's an understanding that the sacrifices are for external physical consecration. These sacrifices are a visible expression of the need for holiness to approach God. That's my understanding of what the sacrifices were about during the Mosaic time period with the tabernacle in the wilderness and Solomon's temple, the glory of God was physically manifested. His presence was among his people. How could they approach his, their holy God? Hebrews 9, 6 says, Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second Only the high priest enters. So we're talking about the Holy of Holies right now. Once a year, Day of Atonement. Not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. I said that a minute ago. (laughs) Gifts and sacrifices are offered. They cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience internally. 
they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. This verse shows us the ongoing nature of the sacrifices in the temple before it was destroyed. It also shows us that the temple and the tabernacle before that was a symbol for the present time, a symbol at that time until the time of reformation. Hebrews 8 is about the new covenant that does away with the old covenant. The time of reformation could be referring to the age when Israel is living under the new covenant. That will be during the millennial kingdom. Hebrews 7.12 says that when the priesthood is changed, as it has been and will be carried out in the millennial kingdom, then there is a change in the law also. So with Jesus, with his sacrifice, he has made a change in the priesthood and in what will be like the Mosaic law that the priest has to be a Levite. That's changed. Hebrews seven twelve. when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes a place, a change of law also. Well, I've made this statement. So simple. This solves the problem of the differences between Ezekiel's law of the sacrifices and Moses' law of sacrifices. The Jews who read Ezekiel's explanation of the sacrifices said, this does not match what Moses told us to do. There's a problem here. Ezekiel's not right. That was their first reaction, some of them. And I just learned yesterday that some Jews did not want the book of Ezekiel to be in the Old Testament canon. But praise God, he made it in. (laughs) Uh, So Jews have had trouble with Ezekiel's prophecy of sacrifices because they didn't match what they understood the Mosaic sacrifices to be. Christians have problems trying to understand why Ezekiel talks about sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. So this is a very challenging place to be in Scripture. Hebrews 9, 22 and 23 help me understand things a lot. So let's look at these verses. According to the law, one may almost say, almost all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. All right, we got to sit in these verses for a few minutes. Verse 22 has all, um, according to the law, almost all things are cleansed with blood. That verb is in Greek in the present tense. So that means it's happening. Indicative meaning it's just stated. It's a statement. And it's passive, which really means All things are, almost all things are being cleansed because the things are not cleaning themselves, but they are being cleansed with blood. So now think about that that way. According to the law, almost all things are being cleansed with blood. There's a statement. Things are cleansed with blood. I hold that thought. Verse 23 says, therefore, it was necessary. And I've underlined it was. But there's not an active verb in this sentence in the Greek. The 
phrase, it was necessary, has been inserted by translators. And long ago, probably Dr. Gingrich, I don't know, he's a scholar, he's a, a highly revered Greek grammarian, Mr. Gingrich, applied the present tense here to say it is necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. And that makes a lot of sense. If Hebrews is written during the time temple sacrifices are being made. The temple and the tabernacle were copies of the heavenly things. So it is necessary for the copies on earth of the things in heaven, the copies of the things in heaven, a copy necessary for the things on earth to be cleansed with these, with the blood of animal sacrifices. So if it is accurate to say it is necessary, then future, the earthly future millennial temple which will be a copy of the heavenly temple. It can be cleansed and purified with animal sacrifices. The future millennial temple is on this earth before the earth has undergone its recreation. The future millennial temple will be built by Jesus who is sinless, but who's helping him? Sinful man. And it's on a sin-stained earth that Jesus is overriding the curse and making things really good. But there's a need for external cleansing. It's necessary because worshipers will be in their mortal bodies, not yet glorified. So I'll just say that all again. (laughs) The millennial temple is still a copy of the heavenly temple. The millennial temple will be built by sinners on an earth that's still groaning for the new creation. The millennial temple will be in the middle of a world of sinners, just like our churches are today. So is there still sin on the earth during the millennial kingdom reign of Jesus? Yes. You also have on your handout this statement from Dr. Randall Price. He says, the outward and earthly character of the ceremonial sacrifices and the internal and spiritual character of Christ's sacrifice are of two different kinds, operated in two different spheres and were for two different purposes. So I've really highlighted two different types of sacrifices here. The outward earthly ceremonial sacrifices that are providing temporary external cleansing from the defilement of sin. And then Jesus Christ is the one redemptive sacrifice. You also have a quote. Ezekiel himself believed that it, the temple, was a reality and the future home of Messiah. Then it becomes not heresy to believe that a temple and sacrifices will exist. Rather, it is almost a heresy to not believe this, especially because it is a part of God's infallible word. The burden on us is to determine how it fits, not its reality. Are you going to take the Bible and say, well, it says that, but that doesn't make sense to me. So the Bible's wrong. No, God said it. The Bible says it. 
Doesn't make sense to me. I need the information. I need God's enlightenment. I need to accept God's word and submit to it. At least four other prophets join Ezekiel in affirming a sacrificial system in a millennial temple. And I'm going to send you some of those verses for your homework, (laughs) that last page in your homework this week. But Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Malachi all mention sacrifices. So this supports a literal and futurist understanding of Ezekiel's temple. And that quote is from John Schmidt and Carl Laney, and their book is The Messiah's Coming Temple. And I just got this yesterday, and I did a speed read scan through it, and I liked so much. It's really pretty easy to read. There are stories in here. They talk to Jews who are in Israel. They talk to Jews who are making preparations to build the third temple. And they consider the issues. So they go through Ezekiel and you'll be in familiar territory with things that they have said, all the signs that Ezekiel acted out. So there's a lot of good in here. They do say that the sacrifices are memorial in nature and for worship, but they do not add in this ceremonial aspect. So... Um, I stand with them. They are believers. We are limited in our full comprehension of what's going on in the future. We're trying to understand it. And I look forward to when the Lord is going to really make it all clear to us. So I, I handle all this information humbly. This is the best of my understanding as I have researched on my own. And then God keeps showing me putting in my path. And this year, since January, he's just been giving me more and more bits and pieces of agreement to the things that I'm sharing with you. One of those bits and pieces would be this book, which is To Seek, To Do, and To Teach, which is a collection of essays that are written in honor of our Dr. Larry Pettigrew. And this book is published by our seminary, Shepherd's Press. And One of the essays that is written is, I've given a page out of that essay, written by Matt Waymeyer, and he has a note of appreciation for Dr. Pettigrew's humility in handling the scripture. And then he says, I offer this essay on one of the most difficult issues in all of scripture, the animal sacrifices in Ezekiel's temple. So I commend you for... Uh, just thinking about this and reading Ezekiel to see what he has to say himself. Let's look at what Matt Waymeyer says on this page. That's the last page of your handout. The case for this view, and he's talking about the ceremonial cleansing view, ceremonial sacrifices. The case for this view begins with the nature of atonement and the meaning of the Hebrew verb kippur, which means to make atonement. Its use throughout the Old Testament appears to indicate a foundational meaning of cleanse in the sense of purging or wiping away. Sometimes it refers to atonement for sin that results in forgiveness, but it's also used of both purification in which an unclean object or person becomes clean and consecration in which a common object or person is set apart as holy. According to this view, the atonement accomplished by the sacrifices in Ezekiel 40 through 48 
falls into these latter two categories and is related to temple service in the millennial kingdom rather than the forgiveness of sin. Internal forgiveness. Internal forgiveness is only accomplished by the one sacrifice of Christ. Everything else is external, ceremonial. So the word atonement, kippur, is in Ezekiel five times. And they talk about those times. It's used twice in reference to the one-time act of atonement for the altar. All right, y'all just think about it for a second. Does the altar have internal sin that Jesus' sacrifice gives it eternal salvation? It's a thing. So it is being cleansed. And then, so it's used two times as atonement for the altar, cleansing this thing. And that's what it says right there. The purpose of this atonement is not the forgiveness of sin, but the purification of a place. A third use is the annual decontamination of the temple. Again, cleansing a place, a thing. The final two uses of the verb, atonement is made for the people of God. So atonement for them, atonement for the house of Israel. This is most likely providing the ritual cleansing necessary for them to serve and worship in the temple. An outward, external act because they are a sinful body in the presence of the glory of God. This is not what we normally think about because we are New Testament believers who rejoice in the internal cleansing. We understand forgiveness of sins. We recognize Jesus shed his blood and his blood did that supernatural act of cleansing us within. And we're told the blood of bulls and goats could never take away the sin, which is true. The blood of bulls and goats never took away the internal sin nature. Ezekiel 36 told us, 3626, God would pour out his spirit, take out the old heart, put in his new heart, sprinkle you. That sin offering was sprinkled. Um, So I see a connection there. I have just a little bit here in closing. (laughs) The Levitical sacrifices of the Mosaic law are described as making atonement. Leviticus 4.20, I read that verse to you, related to the sin offering. The priest shall make atonement. If those Mosaic sacrifices actually did atone for people's sin and give that internal cleansing, the blood of bulls and goats would have been doing an internal forgiveness of sin. And then the sacrifice of Christ would not have been necessary. But we know We needed him. So the atonement that the Mosaic sacrifices made was ceremonial and external. Dr. Thomas Ice says, Critics of future millennial sacrifices seem to assume that all sacrifices past and future always depict Christ's final sacrifice for sin. They do not, he says with an exclamation point. And I've tried to show you that today. He says, there were various purposes for sacrifice in the Bible. Purification of the priest and objects used in various rites. 
This is why atonement can be said in the past to be effective, yet still need Christ's future sacrifice, because many of the sacrifices did atone ceremonially, cleansing participants and objects in the temple ritual. In Ezekiel's temple, the altar is going to be consecrated by sacrifices, and scales for weights and measures will be consecrated. Those are two things. And then we saw or read a statement about the uh, annual purification, decontamination of the temple. Just as we never finished the task of washing clothes, ceremonial cleansing was an ongoing need. The same is clearly the case in Ezekiel. Dr. I said that. I didn't even say that. So, we explain everything this way because our understanding of the messianic kingdom is that Jesus in his resurrected, glorified body will be reigning as king of kings. I believe he's going to have a throne chair in the temple instead of the Ark of the Covenant. And the glorious presence of Yahweh, our invisible God, he will manifest himself Somehow, his presence will once again be dwelling on the earth in the midst of a sinful and unclean people. So what are the sacrifices all about? The holiness of God and his desire for fellowship with people that they will reverence who he is, humble themselves, make those offerings, recognize their need. It may be that these sacrifices do so much in teaching the sinners of the millennial kingdom what death is, because there is less death in the millennial kingdom, but they will see the death of an animal. The sacrifices will make them recognize that only Jesus' sacrifice offers and provides the internal, permanent forgiveness of sins. And if you're an animal lover, seeing these animals offered and killed repeatedly, that might break your heart. But who died for you? Jesus, our King. So even our affection for animals and concern for animals, the death of animals, should point to Jesus. So right now, even as we're discussing thinking on the millennial kingdom sacrifices, future things, controversial things, it should point us to the gospel. The only one who could save us. It's really amazing. So, one more time, he is the one redemptive sacrifice. Praise Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. Let's pray and do that. Dear God, our Father in heaven, you are holy, holy, holy on your throne. I praise you, Jesus, that you did it all and you are seated at the right hand of God and you are the lamb who was slain and you are worthy of all of our praise and love and obedience and worship. And we look forward to being with you. We look forward to understanding more fully what all of these sacrifices are about 
And I thank you for the truth of your word that you have given it to us to to look at, to handle. I pray that we will handle it accurately and think about it humbly before you. And we look forward to serving you and to serving your people and perhaps even explaining to them one day as they are wondering what these sacrifices are all about. Perhaps you will give us that opportunity, that privilege to point them to you. Thank you for what you have done for us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.